Good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome. Welcome to our first um, theme talk on this year's summer school. The theme is This Changes Everything. Now, for some reason, I always want to put a question mark there, but I think that's <laughs> the story of my life, really. This changes everything, does it? I don't know. It's a good question. But um, So I've been asked to, to go first. Thanks for that, John. And I mean that, actually. Thanks for that, John. It means I can relax, perhaps, for the rest of the week, hopefully. So um, but before we begin, I'm... I, I, We'll just do a short devotional worship, really, because I think it's just just to get us into the spirit before I start going on with myself a bit later on. So let's just let's just still ourselves. Let's prepare ourselves. Prepare ourselves for a, a short period of worship in silence, and let's invite a loving presence to be here amongst us and to awaken within us. Amen. And um, I'd like to invite volunteers forward, please, to, to light our chalice. The problem, of course, with the modern age is people not smoking. It's very hard to get lighting devices, isn't it? Well, reverently as well, that's impressive. You've been taught well. Yeah, please. Thank you. Welcome to this circle of love. Welcome to this, our sacred space in this sacred time. Welcome in the spirit of love, in the spirit of openness, in the spirit of reverence. Here, may we revere God, revere life, revere one another. Here may we find peace, rest, comfort and challenge. In this time and place may we find community and meaning. Here may we know that we are loved, accepted and encouraged to be all that we were born to be. Know that you are welcome here no matter who you are or wherever you have been. Wherever you are going, you are welcome here. Welcome to this sacred space, in this sacred time, in this sacred place, with these sacred people. Welcome to this circle of love. Let's awaken to it. Amen. Let's begin by singing our first him for this morning, well, for this devotion. Um, we're not going to sing the tune in the in the book. We're going to sing a, a more familiar tune, I think, to most people, a, a classic tune, actually. So it's hymn number 181, Wake Now My Senses, 181. Feel the 
thank you. Should all be woken up now? I think I've finally woken up. Thank, thank God for that. And I, I really love the, the last two lines of the fourth verse. Take not for granted a privileged place. God's love embraces the whole human race. All are welcome here. Is a, I think that's kind of that universal love. None left outside the gate. None. I invite us to join together in a time of prayer. Let us pray. O God whom we know as love, we gather here this morning as seekers and finders, creators and destroyers, givers and receivers of love. From the day of our birth we have asked for love and yet as we grow and change in time we realise how little we really know about how love is given and how to grow within its nurture. Help us to recognise the love that surrounds us and in which we have our being. Help us to understand how we can be perfect channels for that love. Help us to see ourselves as the loving people we are and can be. In silence now we bring to our mind's eye the people who have loved us and continue to love us. People who are not here with us today, but whose love we carry with us. People who are there every day and whose love we sometimes take for granted. People who might be within our circle of love, could we but extend it just a little further. In a few moments of silence now, let's hold these people in our hearts. And in returning from silence, we ask that our hearts may be opened to all whose names and whose faces have crossed our minds. We ask that old wounds may be healed, that constant joys may be celebrated, and that the love that we share with the people in our lives, that this love, that this love may be our abiding teacher. We ask this in the name of love. Amen. I'm just going to share a little tale with you this morning. Um, 
And I picked this too early because it remind, well, it reminds me a little bit of my granddad actually, not the granddad that I've written about, my other older granddad, <coughs> old man Crosby as they used to call him, who was a, a farmer and a lover of horses, well as he used to call them, ossers really, so <laughs> people don't really understand that. And, um, I always remember a funny tale about my granddad, he was not a very educated man, in fact he was decidedly uneducated, I think he left school probably when he was about 11. Um, old man Crosby and he was but he could just about read and he was once and he was only really interested in horses or horses as as most educated people would call them and he, he was just reading a magazine about them and he, and he turned to me Graham and he said he Kathleen have you ever heard of an os dean a penemonia I've never heard of an os dean a penemonia <laughs> and my grandma looked at the magazine and she said Bill, no, this is pneumonia. The horse died of pneumonia. <laughs> so, yeah. But you know, he only reread what he saw, you know. Maybe it could read better than most of it. It's really pneumonia pneumonia. But the story's not really about that. But it is about a farmer and his horse, or his horse. I'll, I'll return to correct English. Well, I, I won't, will I? I'll do my best to return to correct English this morning. So this is a story from the Taoist tradition. Let's wait and see. Probably familiar to many of you. There's a story of a farmer who had a, some would say, a balanced view of life, but which puzzled most of his neighbours and his friends. They couldn't understand how he reacted to life with such equilibrium and such balance, it would seem. And the story goes that this farmer worked hard in the fields. He just had a, he had a wife, a very young son, and one horse they said it right one horse it's an ordinary horse that helped him work the land that kept his family going through hard times through good times well one day but he absolutely depended upon this horse and one day the horse, as horses do I remember well it was sheep in my granddad's sheep chasing sheep across the motorway but I won't go into that that's another story for another day. Um, but the horse escaped and he could not find the horse everywhere. And his neighbours, being kindly and loving people, they heard about this, this terrible thing that had befallen the poor farmer. And they came out and said, oh, this is dreadful. This is truly awful. I feel so, this is the worst thing that could have happened to you, poor farmer. He didn't have a name, so I can't give you his name. Just think of a name. We'll call him Bill after my granddad. Yeah. Bill, Bill, oh, that's not really, anyway. Yeah, Bill, this is the worst thing that could have happened to you. And, and but the farmer just simply looked ahead calmly said well maybe it is maybe it isn't who knows let's wait and see maybe that's somebody bringing about the horse maybe the <laughs> thank you international rescue yeah <laughs> well a few days later it's a real thing international rescue you know my sister called them when my car broke down in the middle of them but we're not here to talk about that story today anyway a few days later this always happens here I can normally tell a story but it always seems to take forever usually, where's Jeff Jones he's usually the one who interrupted me he probably, he probably rang you up didn't he yeah. it's alright no don't worry Anyway, a few days later, the, ho the horse did actually return. And it didn't return alone. It was obviously a, a horse from my part of the world because he'd, he'd found a friend. <laughs> the most magnificent, glorious, beautiful, exotic mare in the whole land. And he'd obviously fallen in love with this rather shabby, ordinary-looking horse. So it's amazing, but... What people will fall for, really. <laughs> Obviously a charming horse, but not the most, not the most, the best looking one in, in the land. 
not a peacock. John was talking about peacocks. <laughs> not a peacock. But he returned with this horse. And when the, and when the neighbours heard about this, well, wow, they were amazed. And they came to their neighbour, Bill. Remember, he's called Bill, the farmer. said, oh, what wonderful news. This, you are the most fortunate farmer in all the land. This will set you on your feet forever. And the farmer just simply responded, maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Let's wait and see. Well, the years went by and these two horses, obviously they were quite friendly. And he obviously did a really good job of seducing this exotic, beautiful female horse. And they produced many, many other horses over a an amazing period of time you've got to use your imagination they produced loads of horses now I'm not quite sure if that really adds up but we won't go into that and when the neighbours heard about and it made his fortune actually he made a lot of money and they could use the other horses they went out to other horses in other fields and like they do with these kind of animals <laughs> the neighbours heard I know the story's really going off the key I'm really sorry this is not how the story's supposed to be told but anyway the neighbours heard about this and they were all very excited and really pleased for the farmer bill and they all came and said oh this is the this is wonderful you are so fortunate you are so blessed life the gods have blessed blessed you with these wonderful horses to which the farmer calmly farmers are quite actually no my granddad wasn't but anyway <laughs> farmers are quite calm people maybe it is maybe it isn't i don't know let's wait and see well, the years had gone by by now. And the young boy had turned into a bit of into a man really. And being a young man like the young men are, they want to prove to their fathers that they are stronger and better than them. And he, he wanted to tame these wild, wild colts. He was a bit of a wild colt himself. So he got upon the horse. I'm not going to try that one here. He got upon the horse and it was a bit too wild. And it threw him from the horse. Ooh, nearly fell over then. Threw him from the horse and he broke his hip. Crippled him, really. And when the neighbours heard about this, well, oh, farmer, this is the worst thing that could have possibly, possibly happened to your poor son. He is crippled. And the farmer, <laughs> maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Let's wait and see. Well, a few months passed and he was from a country like many other countries and his country went to war. You must go, oh. You know, none of you have done that, actually. You're not very really sympathetic. You're very good at laughing, but there's not much sympathy. The poor boy broke his hip and there was no... <laughs> but you, you all laugh at the funny bits. I won't point my finger. Think about that later. <laughs> they, they were very sympathetic. And they put, oh, this is the worst. No, no, so I've got the story wrong. I forgot, I've gone too far now. <laughs> the army came to conscript all the able-bodied men in the land. I thought, terrible, isn't it? You get too carried away. They came to conscript all the able-bodied men and women in the land. And they took, oh, they did, but they didn't take the farmer because he was far too old to fight. And the boy, well, he'd broken his hip and he wasn't useless, no good to fight. They took away all the horses. Aww. Aww. <laughs> no sympathy at last. Eh? They took away all the horses, apart from the one old horse 
which worked the land. So the farmer was left with his wife, his son, and the horse that he needed to work his land to get by day by day. So, was the farmer lucky? Did the, were the fates on his side? <laughs> Maybe not. I'll leave that for you to decide. Really. Good luck, bad luck, who, who knows really? We decide ourselves. Maybe we only make sense of these things much later on in life when things happen to us at a certain state which can seem like the worst thing that can possibly happen or the best thing that can possibly happen at the time may not actually work out that way in the end may not certainly my life has been a bit like that okay um that's if you want to invite the, those that are going to do other activities to leave now you don't have to listen to me going on about myself for ages it's not funny anymore it gets really <laughs> depressing from now on really serious you, anybody else want to go before <laughs> no more laughs sorry that's it <laughs> Right, I'm going to just change my face. <laughs> I'll have some water as well. Should I shut the door? That would be a good idea. Actually, before I begin my talk, I, I, I just came, I came across a little bit of wisdom that appeared on Facebook. If you follow anything, these little bits of wisdom <laughs> pop up. Anybody who uses social media will, will know that. And um, this came up a couple of days ago, actually, on my feed. And I, oh, it seems just perfect for, for this theme talk today. I wish I'd come across this a bit sooner, but it just came up and it comes from. Um, well, it comes from it's something from Joseph Campbell, actually, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell, probably one of the major figures, one of the most influential figures in the last 40 years in the movie industry, but not really universally recognised for that. And maybe that wasn't his original <coughs> idea for, for, for his work, but I think he's been quite an important figure, really. But this comes from Pathway to Bliss by Joseph Campbell. This is what he said. The first law of science is that the truth has not been found. The laws of science are working hypotheses. The scientist knows that at any moment facts may be found that make the present theory obsolete. This is happening now constantly. It's amusing. In a religious tradition, the older the doctrine, the truer it is held to be. In the scientific tradition, on the other hand, a paper written 10 years ago is already out of date. There's a continuous movement onward. So there's no law, no rock of ages on which you can rest. There's nothing of the kind. It's fluid. And we know that rocks are fluid too, though it takes them a long time to flow. Nothing lasts. It all changes. And it's that last sentence, really. Nothing lasts. It all changes. Oh, well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't, actually. I'm not. Depends how you see these things. It really does depend how you see what, what change is. So this changes everything. And I keep wanting to put that question mark there at the end. I don't know why. Because I'm not... Mm, depends how you see it. And depends what we mean by change. 
So we're exploring this subject with the, you, you beautiful people in this gorgeous place, even though the weather could be better, but you know, we can't control, it'll probably change later on, won't it? If anything changes, it's the blooming weather, in, certainly in the north of England, I'm sure it's the same all over England, really. So the next five mornings, different ones among us will be exploring this theme. And I've been asked to speak first to kind of set things in motion. I think that's what you said, John, wasn't it? So, Standards. Oh, is that what you said? Oh, bum. We're in trouble. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, I said there'd be no more laughs in the summer. So, well, here we go anyway. Well, I'm actually going to, and I, from what I've read from this brief notes that, that the other speakers, they sound really interesting, by the way, talk about, my perspective will be different, and so will all theirs. I, I'm going to come from a quite a personal perspective, actually. I'm going to, I like to put flesh real flesh on the words I speak, my own, I suppose. So I'm going to talk for a few moments about my own life, really, well, for a few minutes, for quite a while now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and moments in my life have changed everything, or at least they seemed to change it. You've got to talk for ages, haven't you? For this? <laughs> I hope... Well, we've got yours to come, actually, Joe. <laughs> And, and I hear you're using flip charts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not using flip charts. I, don't use I, I wouldn't know how to. I'll just flip you all out in a different way. But I mean, I'm going to talk from a personal perspective. Really. Just hopefully, you'll find some kind of identification with my meanderings through parts of my life. Hopefully, you can. They won't be exactly the same. None of our experience, nothing's exactly the same. No experience is exactly the same because the person experiencing it is not exactly the same. Although we are all the same at the same time, strangely enough. So hopefully you'll find some similar. Even, yeah, even you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now the first thing I want to say is that I'm not actually sure that change is the right word I want to use, really. So I'm, I'm questioning the word change. I'm not sure that I've really changed in the sense I've become a different person. An essence of me, whatever has happened in my life, has always remained the same. But change, you know, I, I prefer to talk about awake, awakening rather than transformation. I see my life as, as an awakening process. Although, before you wake up, you first have to go to sleep, I find. So the, the bit of my stuff... Morning, Joyce. How nice to see you. Now, the first thing I'm going to do... <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I should have. <laughs> I do apologise. I'm just going to start with a little story from, about the Buddha. You've probably heard this story before, but it is rather lovely, I think. So when the Buddha started to wander around India, shortly after his enlightenment, he encountered several men who recognised him as a very extraordinary being indeed. They asked him, Are you a god? No, he said. Well, are you a reincarnated god? No, he replied. Are you a wizard? No, I'm not a wizard either. Well, are you a man? I'm not a man. So what are you then? I am awake, he replied. Apparently to be the Buddha means to be the awakened one. And to wake up is all that he taught, I'm told. I wasn't there, so I don't know. We have to only go on other people's accounts again. So before, before you wake up, you must first go to sleep. 
I don't think we're born asleep. We wake up immediately, don't we? We can. It's quite a shocking experience. About not, not that any of us remember it. I don't think, but you know, we burst into tears. We have to do. But when I look back at my early life, I see that as a journey to falling asleep, really, which is not what you're supposed to do, really, as a kid or into early adulthood. It's supposed to be a time of waking up. But for me, it was a time of of drifting into sleep slowly, withdrawing deeper and deeper into myself, really. There were reasons for that, but there were only really alibis, excuses, really. There was stuff going on in my life that wasn't great, but... Um, and I, I just, but I grew up for, for whatever reason with a sense of being wrong. That I was wrong, that life was wrong. Well, as I said, if you feel wrong in yourself, you're going to feel that life is wrong and that everybody else is wrong too, by the way. No one told me that. That's just how I felt. I had difficulties. It was a difficult environment. I also had real physical difficulties too that um, filled me with a lot of shame about my own physical being. I had to have physiotherapy every week and couldn't do the things that many other children can do. Wasn't allowed to actually. So that, that kind of fed into that feeling of being wrong too. But I don't believe that was the reason I was like that. I think I was, I was just like that. Found alibis, excuses perhaps for later in life saying this is the reason that I was the way I was. But today I don't really believe that. I don't subscribe to that belief anymore. And it kept me a slave a long time, those, those beliefs. From the age of 11, things got much worse. I, w I was stopped from seeing my father, so I was cut off from that grandfather that I mentioned earlier and all that, all that lovely farm life. I discovered other things, mainly alcohol and other, other, other things, shall we say, at a very young age. And... Um, and just went deeper and deeper into self, really, I suppose. Drifted into early adulthood work, which just whatever work that wasn't very interesting, music, hedonistic lifestyle, I suppose, what some might call an alternative lifestyle. Searching for freedom, you might say, but really I was going deep, I wasn't, I was becoming a slave to many, many things, which were not which were not good. I would have claimed a kind of idealism at the time, but really that slowly became a kind of cynical nihilism, really, as I believed in nothing. But things fell apart in my early 20s, and then I kind of hit my first rock bottom of my life, which led me to deciding I needed to do something about it. A kind of first sort of changing point, if you like, where things changed. And I, and I Decided to get an education, just like that, and I went and did it. And uh, came to Manchester and created a career out of nothing, which didn't exist, but somehow persuaded people to give me a load of money to do something that I decided I wanted to do. Carved, carved a career out of nothing, but yet it didn't really change anything. I, again, drifted deeper and deeper into this kind of nihilistic, life-hating kind of experience inside. That came to a head about 14 years ago as I accepted my alcoholism and my addiction and, and began a journey into recovery. Another, another point, a moment that changed everything really, I suppose. Not an easy journey, but, um, but a beginning of waking up, I suppose. Up to that point, my life, I'd been going to sleep. I suppose this was a turning point when I began, I would say, to wake up, to really wake up and, and feel life fully. To feel alive but that was a slow process you know i was a man who believed in nothing i had been a humanist i think at one time i was even a member of the british humanist association 
But it's pretty difficult to be a humanist if you don't really believe in humanity, I suspect. <laughs> you know, to really, to really be one properly, you kind of have to, I, I think you do anyway, but so that, that kind of went by the wayside. And I certainly had no spiritual or religious beliefs. I had deep contempt for them, even though there was no reason for that, really, because I'd, I'd not had a bad experience of religion, because I'd not really had much of an experience of it, full stop. So where that came from, I think it just came in with all the other cynical thinking that went along with most of my life, really. But things began to change. I should have said my experience of life began to change as I began to. I had some deep and profound experiences, which I don't really understand to this day. I've spent a long time trying to make sense of them, but I accept today that I will never make sense of them. I don't think we can. I think it's beyond we earthbound humans to make sense of these things. It's a bit like trying, I often say, it's a bit like trying to understand a butterfly. You can't understand a butterfly by sticking, by nailing it down and pulling it apart. You only understand a butterfly by watching it fly. That's a butterfly, isn't it? You pull things apart, you just destroy them. It becomes nothing. And I spent my life doing that, and I can see that now, to try and make sense of something because it frightened me the fact that I didn't know. I needed to know. I needed to understand everything instead of learning to just enjoy it, experience it, the beauty, the simple beauty of it. But, you know, I don't think I'm alone in that. But my life, you know, things happen in my life. Things really changed dramatic, dramatically for me. And... Um, it was a real turning point, a point of change. Now, being a man, but being a man, so I began to then explore spirituality, religion, and all kinds of other things, and that took me to Cross Street Chapel in Manchester in early 2004 and the Unitarians. And I didn't find the answers there either, but I found something far more important. I found a sense of belonging. And I found that instantly, and I'm sure most of us here will identify with that too. Probably came for different reasons, but a sense of understanding. So life continued on. I began to reconnect with family and all kinds of other things and, and that the awakening continued. And then another moment where everything changed. And again, going back to that story, it seemed like a moment of disaster. It was, it was All Souls Day 2006 when I received a phone call from my friend that her son had been killed and he was everything to me. In fact, tomorrow he would have been 16 years old, the 23rd of August, 2000, he was born. So and the, so I always feel guilty when I come to summer school because I kind of want to be back home actually on that day because they all go to the, to the grave and, and dress the grave. So I won't be there. So I, I feel a little guilty about that today, but that's just to tell you that tomorrow. And I had a very deep connection with this boy. Um, and that morning, on my way to work, something very horrific, strange happened to me. I, a gut-wrenching experience. You mentioned gut-wrenching yesterday. It was really interesting you said that because I felt the most violent feeling I've ever felt in my life. I think it was ten past seven that morning on the bus to work. And I learned a little later that that was the exact moment that they turned the machine off in the hospital. He died. He'd been hit an hour earlier, but he died at that precise moment. There was a deep connection of love between me and this boy, very special. So that was a, a moment that changed everything, but not, but oddly enough, it didn't change things 
it changed things but as I meaning came from that as as I've noted it didn't take away that that sense of of understanding that sense of faith that sense of love in fact that sense grew stronger in the next in the coming weeks months years as I recovered from it myself and attempted to keep his mother alive that wasn't easy but she's doing all right today and it also drew me into ministry oddly enough as I questioned what I was doing in my life at this time and in many ways my ministry is a legacy to this to Ethan actually that love that he gave me at a time in my life when I was untouchable really really if I'm if I'm honest so most of what I do is, a, is an act of, in many ways, it starts from an act of remembrance for what he gave to me. You know, this one, he was only, I only knew him for just over three years of his life. He was six years old when he died. He was two and just over two when I met him. So I didn't know him for very long. And he didn't do anything. He was just himself. But that's what I needed in my life at that point. And um, if I could change that, of course I would. But... I found somehow meaning has emerged from that pain in the work that I do today. So I hold that with me. Now I've talked for a little while now, so I'm going <coughs> to, some of it probably difficult to listen to, but I'm going to give us a, just five minutes really, just to maybe talk to the, our neighbours and maybe talk about moments in our lives perhaps that have touched us, changed us, or significant people that have touched us and changed us. So I just want to just give you five minutes just to, just to perhaps have a chat with the person next to you, whoever that might be, whether you know them or not, and just maybe talk amongst yourselves just about experiences or people that have touched you and changed you in significant ways. Well, that's quite powerful, isn't it? <laughs> Lovely. Well, you seem to have plenty to talk about, yeah? <laughs> wasn't too it's amazing isn't it it was that sound effect that John was looking for last night or the other night the night before that. It was, when was it you were, you were, it was a story at all wasn't it Sunday morning yes the sound effect of people chattering yeah it was, it was a lovely sound by the way very it was lovely to hear music to my ears okay I'll, I'll continue now so nothing ever stays quite the same everything is always changing in some way or another even if it's not always obvious or at least it appears that way, doesn't it? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. You know, really. The weather's different, but it's not really that different out there. Sometimes the changes are big and obvious. Sometimes thing ha things happen that change everything forever. Sometimes. Some of these can be close and personal. And some can be more in a, on a global sense. We've talked of this only this week. Moments that change everything forever, or so it seems, or so it seems. Now, over the last 12 months of my life, as many of you are aware now, there's been some dramatic physical changes in my, <laughs> in my appearance at least, and, um, in my way of being. And um, as I've actually, and that's true, but really I, I've woken up to myself on a, on a physical level, that part of my being. I'm, I feel like I'm on the third stage. The first stage was a, a spiritual awakening, if you like, the spiritual part of my... Then it was a mental, I would suggest, and now I feel it's a physical thing. And I think it is that order, actually, that that's the order it's taken place with me, physically, then mentally, and, no, spiritually, then, then mentally, then physically. Can't even get that bit right, bloody neck. <laughs> One day I'll be able to do this job. <laughs> One day. 
But the process actually began a little earlier than that. It began actually at the watch night service that I do at midnight. And when I first went to Old School, I wasn't pleased about this. But it's actually become one of the most popular services of the year. We get more at that service than on an average Sunday, actually. <laughs> uh, but we had 30 on this, this New, New Year's New Year's Eve at midnight in, in the chapel for the, for the service. It was amazing, actually. Um, but I, as I burned my little thing I wanted to let go of, I, let, I, I actually said I, want, I was time, I needed to lose some weight. I had to get rid of this extra baggage that I was unnecessarily carrying around with me. And, um, and actually it had begun a little bit earlier than that on a, on a simple trip with a load of friends to Alton Towers. And I went to Alton Towers and went on the rides, but every time I went on the ride, I had to sit in the special seat for the very, very large people. So I became very aware of how enormous I'd become at this point and filled with shame and it brought back a lot of feelings that I'd had as a, as a young man really about my physical being. See, getting big was something I quite liked because it gave me a sense of, when I was in my twenties, a sense of being strong and not feeling weak, I think. Oddly enough, I'd grown up, I'd grown up with that sense and it was ridiculous really because I wasn't. I was above average size but what the mind tells you isn't always true, is it not? Uh, certainly what my mind's told me. So the, the journey began at a family wedding, which I've written about and talked about. So you all know about our, our Joe's wedding, our Alan's lad, and um, the car breaking down in Devon in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. International Rescue were called out by sister. <laughs> my sister actually called International Rescue. It's a real thing. She'd learn about it at first, but actually it was just the breakdown recovery. <laughs> that came, but she did call them. They, they, they found where she was on the phone. It's amazing what they can do now. So it, it wasn't Thunderbird 3, but it could have been. <laughs> and the journey back to back home and my journey to, to lose weight, really, and my, and my journey that's, you know, that's happened. It's happened ever since. And that, that led to a, a physical journey that I've been on these last few months as I began to exercise. 15 minutes to begin with was all I could do. What was incredibly painful, that's the state I'd got in. But after I'd lost the weight, um, I then realized I needed to face up to all these, these physical, this pain really, this deep rooted emotional pain actually about, about my body, which for a man to talk about is not an easy thing to do really. It's half the problem we have. We don't really talk about these things. So I began to, to seek help with that, just by going to a gym, working with a trainer, and then a, and I began massage therapy as well, strangely enough, and that's been amazing actually. The experience I've had with that, working with this massage therapist, is I've developed a relationship with my own body, not in the experience of the massage, actually as I've gone about each, after, after each session, and just relived a lot of memories, and really come come to to peace with myself really that the stuff that I was born with really the that aren't even true really the lot the beliefs I had about when I was say nine I had to have this physiotherapy done and the way I walked which was always strange and the things that people said about the way I walked kids are kids they do that to everybody gets it don't they and um but just developing this new relationship and realizing all these beliefs I'd had about my own body were not true and the things I'm able to physically do, working with a physiotherapist now, the flexibility that's come, the, the straightening up of my body. I remember the, the um, massage therapist telling me that when I first came, I kind of came in like this, all <laughs> shameful, and now I'm walking around like that, you know, I'm, I'm not really, but, but just 
you know, it's not just changed my the way that I, I can physically do things, just the way I feel about my, my physical being. You know, it's woken up. So much has woken up these last 13 years, you know. But it's, it's not happened in one moment. And um, I just want to share with you a, a poem that I've come to love the last over the last couple of years by a very well-known American poet, Stanley Kunitz. And this is a poem I think he wrote towards the end of his life, actually. And it really touched me when I first came across this. I'm just going to share it with you. It's called The Lairs. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own. And I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am, as I am compelled to look before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey... I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled? to its feast of losses. In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn exulting somewhat with my will intact to go wherever I need to go and every stone on the road precious to me In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus clouded voice directed me, live in the lairs, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. And I suspect I'm not done with my changes either. Are any others? Really? Although some, some principle of being always abides. I love that. Because we do change, but who we are in essence is, is always there, there. That doesn't change. I don't think, not really, not really. And I think it's about waking up to that, really, really, I think. But there is nothing permanent in life. Life is impermanent, isn't it? You know, the, the beauty of life is that we don't live forever. You know, everything, where is he there I'll quote one for you everything is beautiful because everything is dying you did say you wanted a quote there's one for you. <laughs> only, only, only you understand that Robin but that's alright so I'll give you one they gave you one there's a gorgeous Buddhist saying that captures the beauty of the impermanence of life it beautifully captures the true nature of life a call for us to live more fully in life it goes like this thus shall you think of this fleeting world a star at dawn a bubble in a stream a flash of lightning in a summer cloud a flickering flame an illusion a dream 
Impermanence is the beauty of life. Life is forever changing, transforming, turning into something new. Opening up or closing in. Breathing in, breathing out. Waking up or going to sleep. And Jesus captured this idea gorgeously, didn't he, when he described wheat as a metaphor for the resurrected life. He taught that we all must die before new life can rise again. A seed must die before it can be transformed into life-giving food. We must be transformed into something new. And this can happen and does happen, I believe, at many, many months. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I don't believe that at all. Or twice even. It's a, a continual thing. Or it can be. Nothing stays exactly as it is. No moment is exactly the same. Because we're not exactly the same in exactly the same moment. Like Heraclitus said, isn't it? No man, no one steps in the same river twice. Because the river isn't the same and neither is the person. Nothing. So it's not just that we're changing. It's all changing. Although it's all the same as well, actually. <laughs> kind of, really. Kind of, it is how you see it, isn't it, really? <laughs> So you don't even have to say anything now. I told you that. So you have to do that, and you kind of get what I'm saying. That that Buddhist idea of dukkha, I kind of like that too. But it's kind of misunderstood, I think. Really, we see we see that in uh, that all life is suffering, but really it's that things don't stay exactly the same, and, and you know things do die, and nothing is permanent. It's not that life is a experience that we have to suffer all the time. I don't think that's what it's suggesting. It's just that. It comes to an end. It changes. It dies. We die. Hard to accept that. <coughs> We're not going to live forever. But let's drink a toast to mortality. There you go. There's another one for you, Robin. We try to cling to things and instead of living the life that we've been given. And I think that's about trying to control again. Trying to play God, as some people might put it, actually. We don't need to do that. Everything changes, but life goes on. Yeah? So as I look back at my life, I can bear witness to many, many, many changes. As I look back at the last year, I can recount that much has changed in me. Some people find that difficult, but that's the other thing about change, isn't it? That you can change, you can adjust to the change in you. But other people can find that very difficult. And actually, that's a, I don't think we should be, be worry about that. People should find that difficult. Because often when we've changed, we've had time to adjust to the changes in ourselves. Other people are having to accept. You know, I want to be accepted as I am right now. But actually, I've got to accept that for some people, that's not easy. People get used to us being a certain way. They're comfortable in that. And then if I suddenly declare that I'm this different person and expect the other person to accept me exactly as I am in this moment, that's actually quite a lot to ask of a person. And I've, I thought that in the past. I remember going to John Midgley many years ago and saying that my family just won't accept this new person. And he calmly just sort of said, well, you know, the, they just need a bit of time to adjust. And he was right. Just calm down. They'll be all right. Don't worry so much. <laughs> So there were many changes. In many ways I have changed, in many ways. But I'm still the same man. I am really, in essence. I am not, what I believe has happened is I've just woken up to who I am. And, and hopefully 
Well, I'm 44 years old now, so I'm really excited about the second half of my life. If I get a second half of my life, I don't know what's coming, do I? But I, 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 that's the, the biggest change, really. I, I just feel so excited about what what is to come. You know, I was too long, I was frightened, really, frightened of life, and it gave me a very negative view of, of you lovely people, really, when I was like that. But no, no doubt I am not done with my changes ever, just like Stanley Kunitz, like all of us, really. Although some principle of being will always abide. And I think it's about getting to that, really, and bringing that alive, not being afraid of that, actually, because that's been another part of my journey, frightened of my true nature, frightened of who I really am. And there's no to be scared of. I'm all right, really. <laughs> As a friend of mine once said, he'll do. <laughs> And it is right, it's right. But really, like I said at the beginning, it's not really about change. Because changing sees a somehow a rejection of who we are, and I don't think that's really what we ought to be doing. Or even a rejection of the person I was at one time in my life. I don't want to reject any aspect of my being. It's just about waking up and opening up and Flowering, for the better, well, I picked the right shirt, didn't I? Flowering, <laughs> becoming who we really are, but not rejecting who we have been. I think, I think that's quite disrespectful. It's disrespectful to the people that have been in my life as well. If I reject the person I was at that age, I'm also rejecting those people that were in my life, and I think that's quite a selfish act, really. But that's only a maturity that's come in recent times. And like I've, I've been saying much of the last sort of few days, when things happen in my life, I don't know what's going on usually. I only know when I reflect back, really. They don't, nothing makes sense in the moment, actually. We're obsessed with the moment. Yes, you have to live. Well, no, you don't live in the moment. You bring the moment alive. And you bring the moment alive by bringing your whole life into that moment, into that experience you're having, right? rejecting nothing, even the really painful stuff. Because that's really useful, actually. It's taught... You bring your baggage with you, actually. It's just not very heavy these days, I've discovered. So what I've really learned is that it's not so much that I'm not done with my changes, it's that I'm not done with my awakenings, I suspect. I suspect it's the same for all of us, for, for everyone and for all of created life. So let's keep journeying, journeying on to new awakenings. For everything does change, and yet, somehow, everything is just exactly the same. Yeah? Maybe. Maybe not. Amen. Right. Oh, that's not bad timing. Right, so, I'd like us to sing before I do a little blessing, a little benediction to end our little hour or so together. And I've picked this hymn for reasons... One reason is I really like it. Another one is it's, it's written by one of my favourite human beings in the whole universe. The first Unitarian I ever met, actually, that, that cold January day, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, maybe. <coughs> Mr. Peter Sampson, he handed me a hymn book and he shook my hand and he gave me a warm welcome. And I've never forgotten that day. And this is a, a true gentleman and a true eccentric gentleman at that, but just a beautiful, beautiful man. Pardon? Oh, sorry! 
it's uh, no, I do say I will learn this job one day. I'm used to having them written up here, you see, aren't I? Sorry, it's hymn number 201. What shall we say to them? Just give them a second to find the hymn. Okay? So, well, you know. I do apologise. I get too excited, me. Hymn number 201. What shall we say to them? 201. forward into life once more may we do so in the spirit of faith and of hope and of love may we carry this spirit with us may we shine bright as beacons to others that there is love in life and we, that we can trust him a love that will guide us if we would be but open to it a love within us and within one another and within all life we just need to be open to it and may that love go with us in all that we feel all that we think all that we say and all that we do go in love amen, amen.